This is my past where no one knows me. These are my friends whom I can't name. Here in a field where no one chose me, the face is older, the voice is the same. Why does this stranger rise to greet me? What is the joke that makes him smile as he calls the children together to meet me, bringing them forward in single file? I nod, pretending to recognize them, not knowing exactly what I should say. Why does my presence seem to surprise them? Who is the woman who turns away? Is this my home or an illusion? The bread on the table smells achingly real. Must I at last solve my confusion? Or is confusion all I can feel? Dana Gioia, Reunion It began with the lighthouse keeper, Saul, in the third novel of the Southern Reach trilogy, Acceptance, the young psychologist playing nearby. Quote, The light might see everything, but he'd forgotten a few last tasks, a few last things that would keep him out of the lighthouse for longer than he liked. He moved the wheelbarrow onto the gravel next to the station wagon. He felt a vague urgency, as if he should check on Henry and Suzanne. What if they had found the trap door and done something stupid, like fallen in and broken their strange little necks? Staring up just then, he saw Henry staring down from the railing far above, and that made him feel foolish, like he was being paranoid. Henry waved, or was it some other gesture? Dizzy, Saul looked away as he made a kind of wheeling turn, disoriented by the sun's glare, only to see something glittering from the lawn, half hidden by a plant rising from a tuft of weeds near where he'd found a dead squirrel a couple of days ago. Glass? A key? The dark green leaves formed a rough circle, obscuring whatever lay at its base. He knelt, shielded his gaze, but the glinting thing was still hidden by the leaves of the plant. Or was it part of a leaf? Whatever it was, it was delicate beyond measure, yet perversely reminded him of the four-ton lens far above his head. The sun was a whispering corona at his back. The heat had risen, but there was a breeze that lifted the leaves of the palmettos in a rattling stir. The girl was somewhere behind him singing a nonsense song, having come back off the rocks earlier than he'd expected. Nothing existed in that moment except for the plant and the gleam he could not identify. He had gloves on still, so he knelt beside the plant and reached for the glittering thing, brushing up against the leaves. Was it a tiny shifting spiral of light? It reminded him of what you might see staring into a kaleidoscope, except an intense white. But whatever it was swirled and glinted and eluded his rough grasp, and he began to feel faint. Alarmed, he started to pull back. But it was too late. He felt a sliver enter his thumb. There was no pain, only a pressure and then numbness. But he still jumped up in surprise, yowling and waving his hand back and forth. He frantically tore off the glove, examined his thumb aware that Gloria was watching him, not sure what to make of him. Nothing now glittered on the ground in front of him. No light at the base of the plant. No pain in his thumb. Slowly, Saul relaxed. Nothing throbbed in his thumb. There was no entry point, no puncture. He picked up the glove, checked it, couldn't find a tear. What's wrong? Gloria asked. Did you get stung? I don't know, he said. End quote. The lighthouse keeper has become the crawler in the books been forgotten in the film. The psychologist has grown up, been the director of the Southern Reach facility, then, diagnosed with cancer, she entered the shimmer with four other women. We saw her explode into light that would coalesce into a copy of Lena not but a dozen minutes ago. 
now that the other Lena, the one we have followed through the Shimmer, has returned to the Southern Reach facility. She sits in an interrogation room, but really, it is the same room where she awoke in minute 12, minus the bed. Lomax and two other men, wearing hazmat suits, are in the room with her. Through a glass wall, at least 14 onlookers, wearing similar suits, blue gloves, face masks. We are close on Lena. Lomax just suggested that the Shimmer was destroying everything. Lena countered, it wasn't destroying. It was changing changing everything. everything. She looks now toward Lomax. It was was making making something something new. new. Reverse second nine, close on Lomax. Lomax. Making what? Immediate reverse, close on Lena. She looks down to her left, our right, thinking. Beat. She looks up. Lena, I don't don't know. know. Second 23, close on Lomax. Beat. Lomax. The team reached reached the lighthouse a few hours hours ago. ago. Everything Everything is ash. ash. Close on Lena. Lomax. Continued. If what you encountered was once alive, it seems it's now dead. She breaks eye contact, looks to the side, downward. Second 41. Angle on the water glass on the metal tray on the table beside Lena. Lena visible only from knees to chest. She picks up the glass, raises it up, out of frame. Second 45, medium shot, Lena, drinking from the glass. From the third Southern Reach novel, the biologist's last will and testament, continued. Quote, At first, there was always the island ahead of me, somewhere along the coast, and my husband's presence in the breadcrumb notes I thought I found along the way that I hoped came from him, under rocks, stabbed on branches, curling dead on the ground. They were all important to me, no matter which might be real and which nothing more than chance or coincidence. Making it to the island meant something to me then. I was still holding on to the idea of causality, of purpose, as that word might be recognizable to the southern reach. But what if you discover that the price of purpose is to render invisible so many other things? According to his journal, it took my husband six days to reach the island the first time. It took me somewhat longer, because the rules had changed, because the ground I found purchase on one day became the next uncertain, and at times seemed to fall away beneath me. Behind me at the lighthouse, a luminescence was growing in strength, and a burnt haze had begun to dominate the sky, and through my binoculars for more days than should have been possible, there came the suggestion of something enormous rising from the sea in a continuous, slow-motion wave, something I was not yet ready to see. Ahead, The birds that shot through the sky trailed blurs of color that resembled other versions of themselves that might have been hallucinations. The air seemed malleable, or like it could be convinced or coerced. I felt stuck in between, forever traveling, never arriving, so that soon I wanted a place to pretend was a base camp for a while, a place that might quell the constant frustration of feeling that I couldn't trust the landscape I traveled through, my only anchor, the trail itself, which, although it became ever more overgrown and twisty, never faltered never petered out into nothing. If it had led me to a cliff, would I have stood there, or would I have followed it over the edge? Or would that lack have been enough that I might have turned back and tried to find the door in the border? It's difficult to predict what I might have done. The trajectories of my thoughts were scattered on that journey, twisted this way and that, like the swallows in the clear blue sky that, banking and circling back for a split second, would then return to their previous course, their fleeting digression a simple hunt for a speck of insect protein. Nor do I know how much of these phenomena, these thoughts, I should attribute to the brightness within me. Some, but not all, based on everything that happened later, that is still happening. Just when I thought the brightness was one thing, it would become another, 
The fifth morning I rose from the grass and dirt and sand. The brightness had gathered to form a hushed second skin over me, that skin cracking from my opening eyes like the slightest, the briefest, touch of an impossibly thin layer of ice. I could hear the fracturing of its melting as it came from miles and years away. As the day progressed, the brightness manifested in my chest like a hot, red stone that pulsed next to my heart, unwelcome company. The scientist in me wanted to self-anesthetize and operate, remove the obstruction, even though I wasn't a surgeon and the brightness no tumor. I remember thinking that I might be talking to the animals by the next morning. I might be rolling in the dirt, laughing hysterically under that merciless blue sky, or I might find the brightness rising curious out of the top of my head like a periscope, independent and lively, with nothing left beneath it but a husk. By dusk of that day, having ignored the biting flies and the huge reptiles that stared from the water, grinning up at me like the mindless carnivores they were, by then the brightness had come up to my head and lay behind all of my thoughts like a cooling piece of coal covered in icy ash. And I no longer could be sure that the brightness was a feeling, an impulse, an infection. Was I headed toward an island that might or might not give me answers because I meant to go there, or because I was being directed somewhere by an invisible stranger? A companion? Was the brightness more separate than I knew? And why did the psychologist's words appear in my mind so often, and why could I not pry them out? These were not speculative questions, a matter for idle debate, but concrete worries. At times I felt as if those words, my final conversation with the psychologist, lay like a shield or wall between me and the aspects of the brightness that an intended peculiarity of those words had activated something in me. But no matter how I turned that exchange over and over in my thoughts, I came no closer to a conclusion. Some things you can be so close to that you never grasp their true nature. That night, I made camp, started a fire, because I didn't care who saw me. If the brightness existed separate, and if every part of Area X saw me anyway, what did it matter? A kind of giddy recklessness was coming back to me again, and I welcomed it. The lighthouse had long since faded, but I found I looked for it still, that great anchor, that great trap. Here, too, grew the purple thistles, in a greater abundance, which I could not help thinking of as spies for Area X, even if everything here spied and was spied upon. The wind came up strong from the shore, I remember, and it was cold. I held on to such details back then as a way of warding off the brightness, as superstitious as anyone else. Soon, too, a moaning came out of and through the dusk, along with a familiar thrashing, as something ponderous fought against the reeds. I shuddered, but I also laughed, and said aloud, It's just an old friend. Not so old, and not really a friend. Hideous presence. Simple beast. In that fearless moment, or maybe just in this one, I felt a deep affection for and kinship with it. I went out to meet it, my brightness muttering the whole way in a surly, almost petulant fashion. A monster? Yes. But after the monster that was the crawler, I embraced this simpler source of mystery. End quote. Lena stops drinking, holds the glass briefly, before slowly lowering it. If we had not noticed before now, the Ouroboros tattoo is solidly in place inside her left forearm. Carl Jung, Mysterium Conjunctionis. Quote, in the age-old image of the Ouroboros lies the thought of devouring oneself and turning oneself into a circulatory process for it was clear to the more astute alchemist that the prima materia of the art was man himself. The Ouroboros is a dramatic symbol for the integration and assimilation of the opposite, i.e., of the shadow. This feedback process is at the same time a symbol of immortality, since it is said of the Ouroboros that he slays himself and brings himself to life, fertilizes himself and gives birth to himself. He symbolizes the one who proceeds from the clash of opposites, 
and he therefore constitutes the secret of the prima materia, which, as a projection, unquestionably stems from man's unconscious. End quote. Lena sets the glass down slowly, and we cut back to angle on the glass, second 51. And we might expect blood, as there was with Cain in minute 11, but there is no blood. This Lena is more intact than the Cain that returned home. Lena puts both hands in her lap and takes a deep breath. As with the hands so many minutes ago, Lena's hands are reversed through the glass. Second 58, angle on Lena from the chest up. She looks toward the glass, then abruptly turns her attention to Lomax. Lena, now will you tell... And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. It was a dream. We live inside a dream. Annihilation. Annihilation. 